We're in the middle of our Advent series called Come Again, Lord Jesus. This year we're focusing more on the second advent of Jesus than on the first. Advent simply meaning arrival or coming. With 11 days to go, our celebration of Jesus' first advent is growing in anticipation. That needs to whet our appetites to stir in us more and more excitement and anticipation of his second coming, which will be a far more glorious appearance, not a localized event in a little town called Bethlehem, but a cosmic and global appearing that no one will miss. It's the return of the king at the end of history. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that these words written by the Apostle Paul, applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, would bring encouragement, assurance that they would whet our appetite, sharpen our sense of anticipation for the second advent of Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. No doubt one of the most needy and uncertain times in life is when you lose someone close to you. Foundations are shaken. Faith is challenged. Nothing is the same anymore. Paul is sharing these thoughts with the church in Thessalonica because he hears two questions being uh, raised. One, what happens to my friends and family who have died? And number two, what happens at the, uh, at the judgment day at the end? 
He answers the first in at the end of chapter four. He answers the second at the beginning of chapter five. The two halves of the passage I read, both are connected because the early Christians absolutely expected that Jesus would return during their lifetimes. And so when a handful of the believers died and Jesus hadn't come back, they didn't have a category for that. They didn't know what to make of it. They started worrying, fretting. Did you need to still be alive when Jesus returned in order to gain all the benefits Or, in contrast, would the deceased already somehow miss out on what Jesus had to offer? This passage is not about satisfying curiosity about end times, though. This passage describes the heart of Paul the Apostle pastoring the people, offering encouragement, comfort, assurance. That's where we'll begin this morning. Revelation bringing assurance. Um. The beginning, middle, and end of what I read have this pastoral encouragement. Chapter 4, verse 13, Paul basically says, I don't want you to be hopeless. And then in the middle, at the end of chapter 4, encourage each other with what I just shared with you. And then at the end, chapter 5, verse 11, again, encourage each other, just as in fact you are doing. First, the beginning, verse 13. Paul basically says here, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. Ignorance is not a very pretty word, is it? It, it, it tends to have these negative connotations. It, it tends to have this insulting kind of sense. It simply means not knowing. And Paul doesn't um, criticize the ignorance. He sets out to shepherd and pastor it. Ignorance lies at the heart of so much of the mess and stress of life. Let me give you three categories, um, and you can fill in the blanks. If you don't know God's promises fully enough, it'll bring fear and anxiety because you'll end up chasing substitutes for what God alone provides to satisfy his love, his sense of belonging, the intimacy that creator and creature were always intended to enjoy. If you don't know God's promises, you go chasing for others that are false. Secondly, if you don't know how fully you're forgiven in Christ, or if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then you will, when you fail, experience shame and guilt and powerlessness, self-condemnation. You'll beat yourself up over the things that you've done and said and thought or failed to do. If you don't know God's truth, thirdly, then you'll far more easily fall for the deception of the evil one accusing you of your sin, whispering in your ear, God doesn't love people like you. You can't possibly go back to him yet again and ask for forgiveness and expect that he's going to give it to you. If you don't know God's truth, you'll fall for those lies. Paul doesn't condemn the ignorance. He relieves the ignorance with gospel truth. If you want to live a hope-filled life of significance and purpose, filled with joy, then you need to know the only hope that God offers through the perfect life and substitute death and victorious rising from the grave that Jesus represents and offers. And you need to rest in that life by faith. Paul doesn't dismiss or ignore the real pain of death. He doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. You'll get over it. He doesn't say, 
I don't want you to grieve. What he says is, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Those last two phrases are the key here. Grieving is appropriate. Um, Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death was not part of God's original design. Grieving is a healthy response to creation gone wrong. Jesus grieved in John chapter 11 at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. In fact, his grief had a tinge of anger to it, righteous anger, because he was upset coming face to face with the destructive, decaying, corrupting effects of sin on his creation and on his people. He saw it. He felt that loss and he got angry at sin and death, of course, knowing that he was going to do something about it. So what Paul's correcting here is grief without hope, not grief itself. Ancient cultures were resigned to accept the fate of meeting the grim reaper. When it came, it came. There was nothing you could do about it. But Paul says, death stinks, grieve it, mourn it, hate it, cultivate a righteous anger towards it. Don't just accept it because death will not have the final word. That leads us to the four R's, last things. Last week's passage and this week's uh, go together in covering the topic called eschatology. In in the Greek language, eschatos means last, Um, eschaton, the last things. And if we're looking at God's overall plan of salvation, if if we were to map it out from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 at the end of the Bible, we'd see this incredible flurry of activity in the in the first century. When Jesus was on this earth, living a perfect life of obedience, going to his cross at Calvary, rising from the tomb on the third day in victorious resurrection, ascending back to the father after spending time with his disciples and then pouring out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This incredible flurry of of dots, if we were to map it on a graph. But between Pentecost and Jesus return, his second advent on the last day. There are no salvation milestones at that level. The return of the king caps salvation history. And when Matthew 24 and 25 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 describe his coming again in the same order, they do so describing it as one event. I don't believe that Jesus comes in two stages a rapture, and then a glorious appearing. I think it's all in one. It's the day of the Lord, as chapter 5, verse 2 describes it. He comes again on that day, and then we see the four R's unfold. Return, resurrection, rapture, reunion. That's it. History's over. The books are closed. And this is so important to realize as we're looking through what may sound a little Sunday schoolish, there is no Christian hope without these climactic coming events unfolding. Your ultimate hope does not lie in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as crazy as that may seem. They lie in those realities being the first fruits, the down payment of what God will complete 
on the last day. Let's let's look at these four R's. Um, first, return. Verse 15 talks about the coming of the Lord. And that was, by the way, the word, um, my third special P. I needed the third P last week, remember? That third P was parousia. I'm on an alliteration kick. Okay, this is it. That's all I got. Four R's, three P's. But parousia simply means coming or, or present. And in, in a wider culture, it had two related meanings. One was um, a divine being making his presence known by revealing his power. Or... Um, the official visit of a king, parousia. Here's a question a four-year-old would easily answer and look at you like, why don't you know that? When the king comes, where does he come from? Four-year-old says he comes from heaven, of course. But where is heaven? How do mere earthlings conceive of this alternate dimension of reality called heaven? Because you don't get to heaven by climbing altitude. You know, the, the space rocket that successfully went around the earth a couple of times and then landed right where they thought it was going to land in the ocean. At its apex, it was no closer to heaven than you and I are right now. How do you get to heaven? Where is it? It's, it's not in climbing altitude, gaining altitude. The, the, the scripture writers trying to describe this different dimension of reality have no other option than to describe it in terms that we mere earthlings would understand. You know, to the ancient peoples, the, the heavens, the stars, the, uh, the, the sky was this unknown mystery. Heaven is out there, as far removed as those stars were to ancient peoples that didn't know distance of, of galaxies. But um, heaven and earth are distinct and separated more like C.S. Lewis's England and Narnia are separated through a wardrobe. The, Narnia, the world of Narnia didn't live in that wardrobe, but the wardrobe was just a portal through which you pass to get to this alternate dimension of reality. In um, Colossians chapter 3, it's not up there, just this idea, Paul describes Jesus' second coming as him simply appearing and I wonder if it's sort of like running in King's Cross Station towards the pillar on platform nine and three quarters. And all of a sudden, you're in front of the Hogwarts Express. It, it, was it there? Of course, it was there all along. It just appeared. They, they, these dimensions lie side by side. And right now, we can't see the heavenly reality, but one day it'll appear. And when Jesus appears... Um, revelations himself that's really uh, revelation means appearing when he appears when he comes when he advents when he parousias we'll all know you know um, when he returns he won't re-enter the atmosphere with flames and land in a certain part of the pacific ocean where only the u.s navy on patrol will know jesus came back and formed cnn it's more like a um, a, a world map unfolded on your dinner table. You can see every part of this earth all at once, at a glance. And, and when Jesus returns, everyone will know it. No one will miss it. It won't be a local event. It will be global and cosmic. 
we will see him as he is face to face. He says it'll be like lightning from one end of the sky to the other. That's why Jesus warns against the deceivers back in Matthew 24. He says, people will come in my name and say, there he is. No, no, no. (laughs) Nobody will need to point him out. Everyone will see him and hear him when he comes. Second R, resurrection. In verses 13, 14, and 15, Paul uses uh, the idea of sleep or falling asleep as a euphemism for death. Um, No surprise in lots of different cultures. The word cemetery actually comes from the Greek word for a sleeping place. Um, and, And nobody intends to communicate by using the idea of sleep that it's just an illusion that this person who died is just going to you know, wake up one day. But Paul is getting at something deeper, um, that death for the believer in Jesus Christ is not final. It's not a permanent reality. They, they, it will be as if they will waken one day into newness of life. He's not dismissing death as not a big deal. He's not saying it's an illusion. He's not just saying get over it. He's saying it's horrible. It should be grieved and mourned. It wasn't part of God's design for his people. But Jesus rising from the dead means that his followers will experience the same one day. And that one day is at his return. Right here in First Thessalonians 4 and 5. The dead in Christ will rise first, verse 16 tells us. What's not described in detail in this passage, but is touched on in other passages, is that uh, God's promise that believers in Jesus Christ will receive glorified bodies. Dust and ashes will be reconstituted, recreated into something far more amazing than we've ever experienced at the age of 24 or wherever your apex was. Something amazing will happen. Philippians 3.21 gets at this when it says that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You know, Luke 24 describes the disciples on the Emmaus Road walking with the resurrected Jesus and they didn't recognize him until he broke bread with them at the dinner table. I think part of the reason is because Jesus had a glorified body. He looked like Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, but there was something incredibly different about him. The glory that emanated from him. First Corinthians 15, Paul says the trumpet will sound same day, the single return of Jesus. The dead will be raised imperishable, never to die again, and we will be changed. C.S. Lewis describes in the weight of glory uh, with some Christian imagination He writes this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. If one believer in Jesus Christ in this sanctuary were to be glorified for an instant, Lewis is saying, with a little bit of imagination, the rest of us would be tempted to fall down flat on our faces in worship because the glory that God will give us is God-like. There's going to be an amazing splendor. We just think, you know, uh, cervical spine and herniated disc back here will be corrected. You know, I won't wake up 
sore, no headaches. That's nothing for God. Our bodies will be glorified, just like the Savior's glorified body. Third R is rapture. By the way, these four R's aren't necessarily in strict time order because some of these events happen all at the same time. Some we just don't know because God doesn't uh, want us to know. We don't need to know. And um, uh, verse 17 is probably the most controversial of, of all the elements of First Thessalonians. When Jesus returns, those who are alive will be caught up, raptured, um, together with the dead in Christ who were just raised in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So if we look at some of our terms in ancient culture, just the Greek use, not so much the biblical use yet. When the king would visit the city, Parousia, the people would go out to meet him. This is a different word and escort him back into the city. Why? Because he was of such importance that he deserved for the city to stop all of its operations, uh, put everything down and go out in honor of the king and bring him back to be with them. Whether we literally ascend into the clouds to meet Jesus because we've been snatched up or not, the book of Revelation is pretty clear that we'll end up in the new heavens and the new earth dwelling with him. That's the promise uh, that verse 17 ends with. And so we will be with the Lord forever. How does that happen? It doesn't really matter. The end result is the key. That's it. One coming. One rapture. Resurrection happens just about the same time. Nobody's left behind. Yes, everyone is judged. Um, no cars whose drivers are suddenly, you know, teleported somewhere else into the air, uh, causing worldwide mayhem because... You know, driverless cars are banging into things and pilotless airplanes, you know, you know, you, you wouldn't want your your airplane pilots to be believers in Jesus Christ. Because what if, you know, um, atheists, uh, airline pilots are, you know, in that in that kind of context. No, no, no one's left behind. Jesus comes back. History's over. The dead are raised. All of humanity is judged. Last R before we look at judgment. Reunion. It's not the last event in the order of sequences. Reunion really is more of a description of what's going on here. Reunion is, is more of a description of why we long for Jesus to come back, which is always rooted in sin. Right? Why, why do we say life is not the way it's supposed to be? Life is not the way I would design it to be. Come, Lord Jesus, relieve me of this suffering, relieve this world. Why do we say that? Because of sin, and especially sin's ultimate consequence, which is death. And death's pain comes from separation, doesn't it? The separation that we feel. The, the, those who died in Christ, believing in him, have no pain. They're, they're free from struggle, physical, spiritual, emotional. There's no stress. There's no anxiety. Um, there's no fatigue. So Paul's pastoral assurance here is that the coming of Jesus will bring reunion. Yes, the, the, the a living and the dead in Christ will be reunited with one another. That's wonderful. That's part of God's promise. It's not the ultimate. The most significant reunion is that believing creature will be 
restored to perfect intimacy and fellowship in, in relationship with the Creator Himself, the King. That's what we were designed for. That's fulfillment. That, that's perfect intent on God's part. And resurrection, by the way, also involves reunion. Because if you die, your soul is immediately in the presence of God. But your body is six feet under. Resurrection means body and soul are reunited as they were originally intended to exist. And that's why the new heavens and the new earth will be physical and spiritual. Lastly, a question. Are you ready for Jesus' return? At the end of last week's passage, Jesus said twice, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And here, Paul puts it this way, let us be alert. Chapter 5, verse 6, why? Because the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Being ready for Jesus' return, staying alert, preparing, does not involve trying to figure out when it's going to happen. We saw last week in Matthew's Gospel, repeated in Mark's, Jesus himself, the Son of Man, does not know the day or the hour. Therefore, we're not going to waste our time and energy trying to figure it out. In between the advents, week number one, we said we have responsibilities to, to honor the king and to get ready because soon we'll be going home. We'll hear in a few minutes. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 use these images of a thief in the night and of a pregnant woman going into labor. When the thief in the night comes, it's sudden and unexpected. You don't know when he's going to show up. When mom goes into labor, it's sudden, it's unavoidable. It's expected. You knew it was coming for about nine and a half, ten months, but it's unavoidable. And, and so then Paul says in verses four and five, but you. He's explaining what he just said about a thief in the night and a woman going into labor. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. What does he mean by this? What he's doing is he's setting up this clear contrast. He's drawing a line in the sand between the old age of darkness being enslaved to sin and death and the new age of light being rescued into the new life that Christ offers. The world is still dark, messed up. But, the gospel always has this but, this contrast between evil and good. The world is still dark, but resurrection means that the light of life has broken into this world order. That a, a slice of heaven has intersected with this other dimension called earth in the coming of Jesus. And you and I can grab hold of that newness of light representing the new coming order by placing our faith in the Son who has come and is coming again. If you have new life in Christ, it means that you're awake, you're alert, you're up before the dawn, you're ready. It's dark outside. The world is screwed up. You don't need me to convince you of that. There's increasing persecution against believers in Jesus Christ. Pressure from every side. You know, the world embraces Christmas as long as it's all about decorations and presents and feasting. 
Um, but the moment you insist that the Christ child born in Bethlehem is truly Lord and Savior, you've just imposed your intolerant self on a perfectly fine holiday and you've gone and ruined it. Why can't you just leave Christmas the way it is? Party, share gifts, decorate your tree. How much worse is it if you insist that the Christ who has come as a babe in a manger, lowly, is coming again in glory as a warrior on a horse wielding a sword to bring judgment to the world. That's not politically correct. That's biblical. That's what Christmas points us to. It's dark outside. But if you live as a child of the light, if you've tasted of his life by faith, then you're prepared for his return. How appropriate is it that our celebration of Jesus' first advent is in the darkest time of year? Because light has dawned. A slice of heaven has intersected with earth. And there's more to come. Here's how Paul wraps things up. He's basically saying, telling us how we should behave, being awake, being alert, self-controlled, putting on spiritual armor, depends on who we are. Are we a child of the light or a child of the darkness? And who you are rests on who God is and what God has done for us. We, we tend to start with behavior. How am I supposed to act? Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, no, no, no. How you're supposed to act flows out of who you are called to be and who you're called to be is defined by who God is and what he's done for you because sin has ruined everything. You, you've distorted who you're called to be. Therefore, out of your sinful being, you can't behave the right way. God fixes it. Starting with the first advent, the coming of Jesus. Because Christmas means God the Son came to live in order to die so that you and I, through faith in him, might live forever. When judgment day comes, all of those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ during our lives will stand before the judgment seat along with everyone else. Here's what we should say if we're believers. Judgment day already happened for me, God. My sin was placed upon the innocent son who deserved nothing, but he went to hell on the cross in my place and justice has been served. Sin has been paid for. It is finished. There's no second judgment day for anyone. And my inheritance and your inheritance, if you're in Christ, will be reunion with the king. As we look ahead to our first Advent celebrations, my greatest prayer is that it would whet our appetites for Jesus coming again when he will make all things new, when he will never let you out of his presence again for eternity, where the reunion will be the sweetest thing we have ever experienced when we are given new glorious bodies to go with perfected souls. My greatest prayer for all of us is that we would bow the knee before the Christ child in worship and in awe that he's coming again. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, you came in humility. You're returning in power and glory. You came in a little town called Bethlehem. You'll return. And from every corner of this earth, we will know. Lord, help us to be prepared to hear your word, to be shown our sin, to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness and mercy and freedom. And then give us longing for your quick return. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.